2: In particular, when we're living in a world with increasing numbers of authoritarian regimes, encryption by default will not only protect dissidents in those regimes, but it'll also protect Americans from having their data stolen by those regimes and data breaches. I think we're probably moving into a more adversarial phase of global relations where having encryption by default would be extremely useful for the average American. But you know, this is all part of a back and forth between the federal government and tech companies. Today's episode is sponsored by X, the
1: Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund.
0: Hello, I'm Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn, here with attorney Preston Byrne of Washington, D.C. law firm Anderson Kill. We're here to talk today about how law applies to technology. Thanks for joining us today, Preston.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Can we start with the most pressing topic in this industry, which is probably fraud? What does fraud even mean when we're talking about a technology that isn't clearly defined yet?
2: Fraud, generally speaking, means dishonest. So you'll see a lot, of, uh, a lot of schemes being referred to by their detractors as frauds. But when someone says a scheme is fraudulent, in order for that really to be legally actionable, you have to have an element of dishonesty, a knowing lie, or something like that. So a scheme can be a poor investment, or it can be a bad idea without being a fraud.
0: I hear you there. And that's exactly what I want to get at in terms of the nuance. There's a lot of people that call Ethereum a scam, for example. But What is the difference between a scam and an idea that's doomed to failure, like so many startups are, even startups that continue to iterate on what their original goal
2: was? Yeah, so a lot of people who call Ethereum a scam, hmm. Um, There really is very little difference between, at, at least at the point of origin, and at least in the way that people can determine in a position of limited knowledge whether something is a scam or it isn't. So let's take Ethereum, for example, right? In the beginning, Ethereum had all manner of promises that were made about what the scheme could and couldn't do. It was promised to be the world computer, it was promised to be this, it was promised to be that. You could make the argument that someone who knowingly made one of those statements about what Ethereum could do, if that statement were false, was attempting to perpetrate a fraud of some kind. It's not necessarily the scheme itself or the chain is, but someone could attempt to perpetrate a fraud. So, for example, we saw an article in Zero Hedge around August of 2016, which said that Ethereum was going to scale up to a million transactions per second and was going to replace AWS. I don't know who placed that article in Zero Hedge, and I don't know who informed that reporter that that's something that Ethereum was capable of doing. But you could argue that what that was was an attempt at fraud, because I don't necessarily think that uh, that that was uh, an honest representation which was backed by the facts. However, Did someone then turn around and invest on the basis of that representation? That's a good question. If we then take a sort of step back and look at the scheme as a whole, I think that the statements that were coming from groups like the Ethereum Foundation were somewhat more measured in the promises that they made. They said, listen, this is a new smart contract platform. It promises to decentralize computing. You may or may not make money. We're not being very specific about what this thing can and can't do. With that sort of context, then you can say, listen, it's a a scheme which has a very low likelihood of success. As all of these do. But you don't actually have something where people are actively lying or spreading falsehoods in order to promote the scheme. So, with these decentralized systems, it really depends on who is speaking and what they're saying in order to determine whether the activity is fraudulent or not. And in most cases, with the big legitimate schemes, uh, you tend to find legitimate, you know, inverted commas, the bigger cryptocurrency schemes. The promises that they make, generally speaking, are hedged enough that you really wouldn't call it a fraud. And we haven't seen enforcement action treating them as frauds. So so
0: it's pretty difficult to prove that someone knew what they were saying was wrong when it comes to a tech context where everyone is just by nature being optimistic and idealistic and hopeful about the thing that they're building. Yeah, I agree. I like what you pointed out too, though, that it comes to who is doing the talking and when it comes to manner of sale. We've seen the SEC say that celebrities should not do paid endorsement of cryptocurrency projects, for example, with Paris Hilton in 2017. But we also have projects now like Acoin, which is spearheaded by the hip-hop artist Akon. If Cindy Crawford can sell anti-aging cream that obviously won't make me look 10 years younger, is there a distinction when it comes to celebrities selling tokens versus other kinds of products?
2: Yeah, there are two universes that apply to tokens that, uh, that are being sold to the public. The first one is the securities law analysis. And I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with it. But basically, when you sell something as an investment to the public there are certain requirements which you have to adhere to if you're going to do so. So if you're selling a token as an investment to the public and you're not filing a registration statement with the SEC, you're going to have a regulatory problem because you're not allowed to do that. So you can sell it to, for example, accredited investors. But even there, there are some complicated issues with regard to what those accredited investors will then do in terms of selling it on. So that that's one side of the equation. And really with any celebrity selling a coin that people are buying for profit, that is going to be the same no matter what they're doing. In terms of the representations that are being made about what the, what the cryptocurrency will do comparing to, say, Cindy Crawford and anti-aging cream, that's really more of an FTC or consumer protection issue. So if we assume for a moment that the securities issues aren't there, there's a range of representations you can say about things that might not necessarily be true, but will be allowable because they're not fraudulent. So you can say this is the best pizza on the East Coast. A pizza restaurant is allowed to say that. That's puffery, commercial puffery, and it's not necessarily an actionable inducement to enter into the contract. I don't go past the pizza joint and say, oh my God, that has the best pizza on the East Coast. I'm going to go there as opposed to going somewhere <laughs> else. It's generally, right? it's, like, it's generally understood that they're not, that's not a warranty. If, however, you say you know, this pizza is gluten-free and then there is in fact gluten in the pizza, that's something which is much more specific. So if you can say this aging cream makes you look younger, great, you know that's, that's super. If you say it, makes, it reverses DNA damage in your skin to ensure that your DNA is the same as the DNA of a 20-year-old, that's obviously untrue and that's a specific representation. So we have to make the judgment between commercial puffery and actual representations and warranties. Why that's important is because if you make representations, so you can say Ethereum is the future of money, right? If you say Ethereum is the future of money or Bitcoin is the future of money, that's a very general statement, which I don't think is a warranty. You couldn't go to a judge and say, he promised me this was the future of money. If, however, you say Ethereum in six months' time is going to have this hard fork, which I'm developing, which will enable it to replace AWS, which of course blockchains just don't do, then you have something which is a very different statement, which would have to be assessed on its merits. So does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So basically, as long as people are vague enough in their descriptions, very little can actually be tied as a fraud or legally classified as a scam.
2: I mean, just try to be honest in your description. So you can say, listen, we think there's a real easy way to go from we think Ether- you know, Ethereum will replace AWS to here's the reason we think Ethereum has the capability of replacing AWS. That culture may not go down well in Silicon Valley. When I had my own startup, people didn't leave my pitches feeling particularly inspired because I wound mm-hmm. up hedging the language all the time being like, listen, you know this blockchain thing you know, might not work out. It might, in fact, just be a really slow database. But we think that blah, 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 blah. And so when you measure it, being a lawyer, I I couldn't help myself. I was never going to be a good salesman. So if you hedge it appropriately, then you can avoid a lot of these problems. But you just, honesty is the best policy.
0: I hear you there. So what's happened lately, since the big token boom, where we've understood that securities laws actually apply to all things that are securities, is a lot of people that are U.S.-based and companies that are U.S.-based have just started working on projects that then they sell outside of the U.S., exactly the same way that they were previously selling things inside the U.S. Is there any way that American law applies to companies that are based in the U.S., working in the U.S., but sell outside, or does it only apply when the buyers are in the U.S.?
2: The SEC can, can grab jurisdiction under a number of circumstances, all of which involve some American nexus. So we have seen a lot of companies that have said, listen, we're only going to have this token listed on overseas exchanges. We're going to ensure that it doesn't get held by American buyers. We're not going to sell to American persons. And so we've seen a lot of that. And generally speaking, the SEC doesn't seek to regulate securities offerings or things that would be seen as securities offerings in the United States if they occur wholly outside of the United States. The danger, of course, is that with a blockchain network, it's very difficult to prevent a U.S. person from turning around and registering a a wallet address on that chain from outside of the U.S. So you have to take really very stringent measures in order to ensure that your token isn't being distributed in the U.S. There are ways to do it, and there are companies that are doing it that way. And it appears that companies that have followed that approach are very low down the totem pole of the commission's enforcement priorities. But, you know, that's just something that's uh, evolving. So we don't know for sure what the position is, but we're fairly certain, you know, it's 85, 90 percent that the SEC is not really going to try to get all extraterritorial if a scheme is staying fully out of the U.S.
0: Gotcha. Frauds and different kinds of unregistered securities aren't the only issue that we face in this space, right? There's also sometimes an incorrect association between privacy tools and money laundering. Do you think that Americans have a legal right to transact privately?
2: Uh, probably not, <laughs> to be honest with you. I, I don't think they do. Do they have a legal right in the constitution to privacy? Yeah, you do. In the fourth amendment and the 14th amendment. So there are elements of your life which are private, but as a practical matter, if you're dealing with large quantities of money and you're moving them around, do you have an expectation of privacy in those transactions? And the answer is usually no. So if you're dealing with, let's say, Bitcoin, and you make a large Bitcoin transaction, you can't turn around and tell the government, well, you didn't have the right to hire chain analysis and trace my funds because that was a private transaction I didn't want you to see, because you're doing the transaction in public. Similarly, if you're engaged in money transmission activity or transmitting funds, large quantities of funds between bank accounts and that sort of thing, there are statutory regimes in the United States which require banks to keep records and make disclosure to the government of suspicious transactions and respond promptly to subpoenas. So again, that's not necessarily a a right to privately transact.
0: Okay, so we don't necessarily have the right to privately transact, but we do have tools that allow us to do so, and sometimes in a compliant manner. When we think about tools like mixers or different ways that we can use nodes to communicate directly on a blockchain network with an encrypted message, for an example, what are the kinds of privacy tools that are the most compliant, and what are the ones that maybe are more in a gray
2: zone? It really depends on a transaction by transaction or message by message basis. You have to look at what the purpose of the transaction is. Mixers generally, I would advise people, I would counsel them to avoid those uh, because the mixers, so the way a mixer is used is everybody throws a bunch of UTXOs, they then spend to the mixer and then the mixer spends back coins, which may or may not be theirs by mixing up all of the transaction inputs and outputs. If you're doing that, you can arguably say that the person using the mixer is now in, let's say one of the users of the mixers is trying to launder the proceeds of crime. You've facilitated that by also providing your liquidity to that mixer. So really mixers are something which if you're trying to do an honest business, you know, you might think you're getting privacy, but really what you're doing is you're just exposing yourself to more risk from a legal standpoint. So I, I would avoid those. You're certainly welcome to use any privacy enhancing tools like Tor. Or, or PGP or other things to conceal your communications. That's your right. It's a First Amendment right to encrypt your messages. And maybe you could use a privacy coin, which has it built in and doesn't have an explicit money laundering purpose like a, like a mixer does or run the risk that you're handling the proceeds of crime. Those are options which are available to you, but really you have to look at it on a transaction by transaction basis.
0: I hear you on case by case basis. And am I correct in hearing also that maybe a shielded Zcash transaction would be slightly less risky than using a mixer or anything that has a shielded group aspect of it would be suspect.
2: To get a firm answer, you'd really have to look at all of the facts and circumstances around the transaction, what the money was being spent for, who was spending it and to whom they were spending it, uh, and then what was going on with the shielding in terms of which assets were shielded and the manner in which they were shielded. Generally speaking, if you have a privacy coin like Zcash or Monero, where you're not actually handling, you have a balance of Zcash, you know, let's say you got, you know, hundred Z coins and you want to spend them Alice to Bob to go buy a car. If that's the transaction we're talking about and that transaction is shielded, I don't see, as long as there's not an unlawful intent, I don't see a big issue with doing that. Just like I can trade a, a horse for a car or some, or, you know, I can agree to mow someone's lawn for two weeks and they'll give me something in return. So there's not necessarily an obligation on my part, to disclose all of these things to the government if I'm just saying, listen, you can have this commodity that I hold. But it really will depend on the circumstances around the transaction. And you know, if there are a sequence of transactions or if, for example, you're engaged in money transmission, so a lot of people will be selling coin A for coin B, like local bitcoins, for example, people would be selling bitcoins for dollars. There's a risk that they may, depending on how, what the pattern is of their activity, that they might be a money transmitter and they might have to register with their state and with the federal government as a result. So it depends on the facts and circumstances. There's no real blanket answer. Generally speaking, buying stuff with cryptocurrency is not reportable, except now on your IRS uh, tax return at the end of the year. But otherwise, it's it really depends on specifics. I would say that a mixer is probably the single worst thing legally that you can do with crypto is use it for an illegal purpose. And the second worst thing is using a mixer.
0: Okay. So... I need you to talk me off a ledge here, Preston, because I'm finding it hard to imagine a government giving citizens the ability to transact privately in a world where digital dollars exist. And that could be for so many reasons that someone could want to transact privately that have nothing to do with wanting to break the law. You know, let's say, for example, that I'm from a very conservative religious community and I want to get birth control. Mm-hmm. You know, there'd be definitely reasons that I would want to have that transaction not be associated with something that I'm going to get a bill in the mail that my family will see. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of reasons that you can legally want to transact privately. Do you think that there's any legal precedent that makes you believe Bitcoin will still exist decades from now, even if it's no longer considered a niche hobby, which right now is kind of how we slide under the radar, but it's recognized as a unique asset class?
2: I don't see this happening because Bitcoin currently is receiving the treatment as property, essentially. And the US government generally doesn't try to regulate one-off property transactions between different people. And it would require a real change of attitudes uh, at the state and federal level for that to happen. So I don't see it happening. It's something other countries have considered and very few have, you know, there's always been the rumor that China's implementing this and China's implementing that ban. And in practice, then nothing happens. So Query how effective those rules are or how accurate the press statements are about what those countries are doing. So I think Bitcoin will probably be here as long as America is a free country. I just don't see the government really stepping in and saying, listen, you now need to, every time you engage in one of these transactions, you need to, well, actually they have done. They've said, listen, you need to report it, but I don't see them making it illegal at any time. I don't think that's in the government's interest to do. Their interest is mainly in taxing it.
0: So, okay, maybe the government won't make Bitcoin illegal, but can the government force me to use some kind of digital dollar for, say, all health expenses? All health care expenses have to be paid with our digital dollar. Or do we have a constitutional right to choose our currencies as long as they are legal tender?
2: So Congress has the right to regulate interstate commerce. When it comes to things like telling people they must do something, for example, the Obamacare individual mandate, you must purchase health insurance. It's questionable whether government can force people to engage in commercial activity, and depending on what that is. Now, the government's uh, Obamacare argument was based on the government's power to tax. I don't see any similar argument being made requiring people to go and buy stuff with a particular type of currency, as long as the power to tax is still there and you have to report it at the end of the year. I can't see them saying, well, you must use this particular payment system. I think that would be an unacceptable infringement of, of you know, basic you know, human rights. What constitutional right would be invoked? I'm not sure. It's probably the due process clause. Uh, You'd be denying someone basically a property right in that instance. So I think that's probably where they would come down on the argument. I don't see them doing that.
0: And I think maybe the other legal elephant in the room here is sanctions. I hear bankers and compliance experts that are concerned about Iranian Bitcoin transactions, and I'm personally really troubled about the way they use the word Iranian because they use it in a way that includes a diaspora as if there's now an ethnic group within the United States that we can deny services to. Do you think Americans have a right to banking services or are there laws that protect our financial accounts from being subject to discrimination?
2: I'm going to preface this answer by saying I don't necessarily think this is the right thing or a, or a good state of affairs. But I think the honest answer is no, Americans don't have a legal right to banking services. They have a right to not be discriminated against generally speaking, arising from consumer protection law for certain protected characteristics. So you can't discriminate against someone because they're Iranian. You can't discriminate against someone because they're Israeli in the provision of financial services. But what you can do is you can turn around and say, well, listen, we think that transactions with Iranians in the US are potentially higher risk because they run the risk of involving Iranian money or money laundering or something else. And there are other justifications which can be used by the banks to deny banking services. And that can be really broad. So what we're seeing a lot of the time, particularly in the sort of far right of the conservative movement, a lot of internet personalities have lost their banking and credit card services over the last couple of years. And the reason is not because the bank says, well, we don't like their political beliefs. It's because they say, we have a reputational risk score that we would have to justify to a federal bank examiner. And having someone who's potentially controversial on our platform would jeopardize that score. So there's, there's certain types of discrimination that you're not ever going to see, at least not directly. So you can't discriminate against someone because of their nationality. But you can turn around and say, listen, we're going to have a bank examiner come in and they say you're doing too many transactions with Iranians and therefore that's a higher risk for money laundering and we might be exposed to sanctions, blah, blah, blah. So it's easier for financial institutions to simply say, listen, we're not doing business with this particular class of people or these countries or these companies because we're worried about sanctions compliance. And it's unfair and it's not good that this is happening, but it's really dictated by the bank regulations at this point.
1: Support for this podcast and this message come from Eris X.
2: With ArisX, you can trade
1: spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ArisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at Stellar.org slash Coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot slash coindesk. So what
0: rights do we have when we think about internet laws, consumer protection laws, workers' rights? What rights do Americans have with relation to money that may or may not be applicable to a world of cryptocurrency?
2: You got a right not to have your life, liberty, or property deprived, except by due process of law. Your stuff can't be taken from you without just compensation. Those are the two big ones. So the government can't turn around and start seizing your Bitcoin for no apparent reason, taking it from you and, uh, and keeping it itself. There are some situations where the government might seize your Bitcoin. So for example, in a civil asset forfeiture scenario where you haven't been convicted of a crime, that isn't great. We're seeing a lot of those actions now challenged at a constitutional basis in federal courts. And these are a bunch of different questions here. So if we're talking about what otherwise so you've mentioned internet laws, consumer protection laws, workers' rights. Those are all really very diverse and different fields from money. Um, it's money is really one thing. Do we have a right to engage in economic activity? Probably. Do we necessarily have a right to go and get a bank account at a particular bank? Probably not. Can the government then interfere with our ability to get a bank account in that bank by unlawfully discriminating against us? No. But can the bank in order to comply with its government obligations decide that it isn't going to provide services to us yes so it's this kind of weird balance where financial freedom is notionally there we don't have any laws which go out and discriminate and target americans based on their beliefs because that would be prohibited by the first amendment or you know the religion because that would be prohibited by the first amendment or their race because that would be prohibited by the 14th amendment but what we do have is we have rules that banks have to follow that identify certain classes of people as higher risk uh, and so then they engage in, a, in an analysis and they say, we can't service this person because they're in this high risk category, not because they're in a protected category.
0: Okay. So the reason that I had brought up these other kinds of law, like internet law, was because we were talking early about privacy, right? And what I can and can't be held liable for if I'm unknowingly participating in it. When it comes to things like workers' rights, a lot of these cryptocurrency projects, they market themselves definitely as decentralized and they don't have a traditional corporate structure. But what that means a lot of times is that the workers may or may not feel like they have the right to ask for what it is they were promised. I think about all the different ways that this industry operates compared to the way traditional tech companies with stocks operate. And I wonder if there are any protections there that are applicable, just like securities fraud, unregistered securities was applicable to cryptocurrency. It doesn't matter that it's digital. So I'm wondering if there are other laws that are from a traditional world that do apply to decentralized projects, even though, yes, it uses the internet.
2: Yeah. So the the big one on workers' rights is copyright. So let's say you have a bunch of contributors to an open source code base, and they're throwing code in, and then the the administrator of the code base decides he wants to do something malicious with the code or not acknowledge their whatever. Controlling the rights, the IP rights of code that gets chucked into a database is hugely important from a, a business perspective. Because authorship, basically setting down the code into a tangible, a medium intangible form, so actually writing it down, is what creates a copyright. And if the person who wrote it down doesn't have an agreement with the person who's running the GitHub repository, it's certainly feasible that the person who wrote down the code first could turn around and then enforce copyright against the project or against people running that code at a later date. So what we usually see is we see things like in the GPL, which is a, an open source license, we see a contributor license, which basically says, I agree to license my work to blah, 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 on the terms of this GPL license to anyone who may use it in the future, which is messy and it's not its not clean. What you really want is you want an IP assignment to the project on certain terms, but it's good enough, right? So once you're putting code into projects like that, generally speaking, you're not going to be able to pull them back. So that's something which we see a lot of the time. There was a um, an Ethereum code base, the code base in C, which I can't remember what it was called. There's the Ethereum code base in C. And back in the day, There was a big discussion over whether that was going to be put into the Hyperledger project. So they went and got every contributor to the project to consent to putting that project under a new license scheme because Hyperledger has the Apache 2 license, whereas the Ethereum C code base was under the GPL version 3 license. And so they had to get everyone to consent, listen, we're going to do this one thing. That got held up because one of the major contributors said, actually, you know what? I want it to stay GPL and I don't want to put it into Hyperledger. So what we did, my startup at the time, is we said, cool, we'll just rewrite and re-implement our virtual machine and we'll license it Apache and we'll put that in Hyperledger. So we wound up giving them their Ethereum virtual machine because we re-implemented the virtual machine from scratch and it had the copyright and decided to give it away. That's something which a lot of people don't think about. Devs in particular don't think about initially because they're just really super interested in building this stuff and, and also legal expenses. VCs hate paying for legal expenses. So these really, really seed stage companies, nobody's telling them, listen, go get your IP sorted out. Make sure your employment agreements are correct and that sort of thing. So that's one. In terms of consumer protection, again, that's something which really is about making honest representations when you're selling something. And this can apply to anything. It applies, for example, to Tether, a company that is being investigated. It's a stable coin. It's being investigated by the state of New York. They turned around and said, we are one-to-one backed by dollars, and there's an open question as to whether that statement was true. So that's a false and misleading statement, which New York could conceivably regulate by saying, listen, you were selling X, allegedly selling X to New York residents, and you were saying this, but in fact, the truth was that. And consumer protection law says that's a deceptive practice, which gives the attorney general's office the authority to step in and regulate that activity and enforce things on the behalf of consumers. So I mean, that's the other one. Finally, sorry, and I know I'm yammering on here, Generally speaking, internet companies in the US that host or republish user-generated content are immune from liability for that content. So there are some limited exceptions to that. So for example, copyright infringement or certain types of pornography. But generally speaking, if you're running a social media website or a, you know, an online marketplace like eBay or something like that, the platform provider is not going to be liable for the posts that the users are putting up or any activity which happens in relation to that. So if someone goes and puts up a post on Twitter and they say, I think that Mark Hochstein of Coindesk is a scoundrel and a rapscallion, and and he beat me up the other day, and none of that is true, Mark, of course, can get gravely offended by this, and he can sue me for having said it, but he can't sue Twitter for having hosted it. So that's one interesting element in terms of understanding how internet companies are traditionally regulated. Bitcoin companies, on the other hand, that immunity that we're talking about that applies to internet companies does not apply to violations of criminal federal law, money transmitter licensing, for example, or securities law, for example. So Bitcoin introduces that financial element. And you have to be very careful about what you integrate with your website, because there was an extension the other day, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a WordPress plugin that said, you can become your own crypto exchange. And what we'll do is you put this code, a few lines of code in your website. And then what it'll do is it'll put up a user interface, and it'll point to a bunch of decentralized exchanges and allow people to transact with those exchanges through your website. Well, you do that, and suddenly you're, you're, you're potentially a money transmitter, A, and B, you're also potentially an unregistered securities exchange, both of which are federally regulated. And therefore, you stepped out of this sort of immune space into a regulated space, and you may be doing that inadvertently. So these decentralized tech offerings, because they're financial, the traditional deregulated Wild West internet land doesn't really apply and companies need to be careful how they engage and interact with them.
0: Speaking specifically of Section 230, it was my understanding that both SESTA-FOSTA, which passed, I think it was in 2018 or was it 19, and right now another piece of legislation coming up, the EARN it Act, both weaken that kind of protection.
2: Correct. So SESTA-FOSTA, for your listeners, was an act which basically imposed obligations on internet service providers to enforce and make certain mandatory reporting, I believe, in relation to certain types of sexual content. If someone's uploading pornography on your website, it's very difficult to know whether it arises from abuse or child sex trafficking. So what the companies are doing is they're saying, listen, we're banning this altogether and none of it's allowed on the site. There was a lot of sex positive material on Tumblr and that all got removed from Tumblr and Tumblr actually lost a lot of users as a consequence because that was apparently a big part of that site's content. So that's one thing. The other one is this um, Earn It Act, which if it passed, it would say that the government has the ability to establish a commission which would establish best practices for working with law enforcement to interdict with sexual abuse material on public websites. But one of those factors that is within the sort of remit of the government to regulate is whether the content is end-to-end encrypted. So the government has trouble enforcing against online predators and criminals generally because they're now using, in increasing numbers, they're using encrypted platforms like WhatsApp, Signal, whereas 10 years ago, nobody used PGP. So as a consequence, it's really difficult to get a view once you have a search warrant, which you serve on a tech provider, if all of the content is encrypted, you can't really understand what's going on unless you have the decryption key. So the government's been looking for ways to get in there and it said, listen, you have to adhere to these best practices, which presumably would involve not using end to end encryption in order to keep your Section 230 liability shield in relation to other content or this particular content. And basically, what that means is if someone was harmed as a result of unlawful use of your site and you kept that content encrypted, what would then happen is the victim could turn around and sue the website. That would be a fundamental change in the relationship between users of websites and websites. Traditionally, websites can't be sued by those who use them, and it's up to them to decide how they want to moderate content. This would say, listen, we're effectively going to make you moderate content or make you pull the encryption from your content, because if you have the encryption in place, that will be deemed not a best practice, and so your immunity shield will fall away. I think that's unwise for a lot of reasons. I think that in particular when we're living in a world with increasing numbers of authoritarian regimes, encryption by default will not only protect dissidents in those regimes, but it'll also protect Americans from having their data stolen by those regimes and data breaches. And I think we're probably moving into a more adversarial phase of global relations where having encryption by default would be extremely useful for the average American. But, you know, this is all part of a back and forth between the federal government and tech companies. Tech companies obviously Generally speaking, they actually aren't encryption by default. Twitter doesn't encrypt DMs by default. Facebook Messenger doesn't encrypt DMs by default. There are other services which do, but they're in the minority at the moment rather than the majority.
0: I hear you there. And I just know from my circles, a lot of the concerns are not necessarily with things that would be explicitly pornography, like a photograph or a video, but with things that, for example, with messaging, saying invitations to a sex party or something like that, which could be associated with prostitution or with sex trafficking, but also could be completely consenting adults that want to privately have a queer experience, but come from a background where maybe they don't want that broadcast. So there's definitely a lot of open questions about even what kind of content this law is aiming or will include, and what kind of implications it could have if it passes. I really appreciate you breaking it down exactly.
2: I think in practice, the impact will be very low because what we're starting to see now are apps that are being developed, they're open source. And what they are is they're an encryption layer, which runs on top of existing services. So you can type in, it's just an, an extension that you install into your browser, and it will turn around and encrypt a message. And then someone with a decryption key who has the same extension will then turn around and decrypt it on their end. And so the tech provider sitting in the middle is basically just acting as a conveyor of encrypted data. Now, what that does is if law enforcement, when they make these requests of companies, they ask for all kinds of data, which allows them to track down who a user is and where they are. So if, uh, if Facebook gets a, a search warrant, they'll get the maximum amount of data, everything, if they get a search warrant. But even if they get a grand jury subpoena, you can turn around and get login information and user agent information and IP address information. You find out what device they're using. You find out the identifiers, the advertising identifiers, which are unique to that device. So if someone has Facebook on their phone or Twitter on their phone, Essentially, that is enough to basically track that user across the entire internet using the advertising IDs that are unique to that phone. So that's a super useful tool for law enforcement when they're using that. If they push this out and they say, you know what, actually, we're going to decrypt everything here and that's going to take really the extreme elements of you know, criminality, terrorism, whatever, to move on to unregulated tools which are running locally on their machines, I think it'll wind up being sort of counterproductive because at the moment, you've got this single repository of data where people can serve that warrant or that subpoena. And they can, in law enforcement can get a very quick response in, for example, an emergency situation. If you push it out and add another leg to that transaction, even if you're dealing with something which is encrypted with Facebook, at least Facebook's your single repository of information. If you all of a sudden incentivize the really, really bad actors, the terrorists and such, to go and use these alternative tools, it's going to be much more difficult to track them down and the relationships with existing big tech companies will be significantly less productive for law enforcement.
0: So I hear you there. that uh, The incentives are actually quite nuanced and not clear cut. So we talked a lot about uh, misrepresentation. And there's this huge gray zone between someone deliberately misrepresenting technology and someone expressing what they hope the technology will do. And it's pretty common for me on a daily basis almost to have people tell me that Bitcoin will be a widely used mainstream currency. And what people mean by mainstream is they mean like my mom being able to buy coffee using the Lightning Network, or they might mean that routine transactions, not the kind of transaction that I would do with something that's classified as property, because that will just have extra hoops for me to jump through when it comes to tax season. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that they're deliberately misinforming. I believe that's genuinely what they think Bitcoin will be. But for you, when you think about the American legal system, how it's treated Bitcoin so far, and how it's treated other kinds of innovations in the past as it became more common and well-known. Do you think that it's likely that Bitcoin could be used in that way? Or, or what do you see Bitcoin becoming, at least for people in the US who are going to need to abide
2: by American laws? It depends on whether Bitcoin improves. I think all technologies are, this is going to go down really badly with the maximalists. So maximalists, inverted commas, I don't like that term. <laughs> I apologize for saying it. Bitcoin is a really good prototype. It's very useful. It's executing beautifully. But it's easy to see where it falls short. And where it falls short are in two key respects. Well, really, it's one, and that is scalability. But when we talk about scalability, I think there are two aspects. Scalability, part one, is how the Bitcoin system accomplishes leader election. When I say leader election, I mean how it decides which block is going to be the next block in consensus. And that currently is not really a scalable process. It requires the expenditure of electricity. The chips are as small as, you know, are seven nanometers or five nanometers. So it's, that's as effective and efficient as it's going to get. So that process, the process of proof of work needs to improve in such a way that you can be a little more democratic with the way that people are able to participate in Bitcoin. And not because there's anything suboptimal about the way things are anything wrong with proof of work. But I suspect that a scheme where someone can run a node quietly on their desktop and pick up sats on their own without running a huge, huge old mining rig, that kind of system is more likely to be adopted than one that isn't. So a lot of different people are focusing on sharding. Uh, If you crack sharding, then you've cracked a very major obstacle to scalability. If you crack sharding, you've also basically created a system which isn't a blockchain because that's not how blockchains don't don't shard that's not how they work they work because you have multiple redundant entire copies of the same thing there are a lot of very bright people working on these problems and the systems that come out every year are more performant than the ones in the previous years so it's just really a question of seeing what happens with those two big developments because if you have a way that everyone can run a node which is performing useful work as an equal first class citizen to other nodes and without necessarily burning out their cpu If you do that, I think you have a very significant competitor to money itself. I think Bitcoin lights the way. If Bitcoin chooses to adopt those technologies when they come out, Bitcoin will continue to light the way. But at the moment, it's fairly stagnant, and those scalability improvements have yet to materialize.
0: Yeah, but I'm not really concerned so much with the technical aspects, because I think they're, as you pointed out, really smart people who are working on that. And I think that They're kind of solvable. Like, I used a Lightning node myself and transacted with it. And if I can do it, really any idiot can do it. But it took days afterwards for me to do the paperwork that I would need for my taxes for transactions that took me seconds. So I'm wondering about in terms of the legal classifications do you see Bitcoin being a useful money if it's still classified in the US as property?
2: That's absolutely right. I think that um, there are some bills that have been introduced in Congress suggesting that de minimis Bitcoin transactions would be treated as just ordinary, non-reportable for capital gains, purposes, transactions. The issue, of course, is that when you buy Bitcoin, you have a cost basis. So if I buy Bitcoin at $100 and I buy, you know, let's say I buy $10 of Bitcoin at $100 and then spend $10 later down the line, of course, the Bitcoin has appreciated massively during that intervening period and I'd use it to buy a cup of coffee. Technically, legally, you need to record that gain value in the Bitcoin when you dispose of it and you need to report it to the IRS. So that hasn't really changed. And that's generally speaking, that's true almost anywhere. It's just that the IRS tends to be a scarier agency than HM Revenue and Customs from an enforcement standpoint, for example. That's one thing to consider. I think we do need legislative change. I think that's a fair legislative change to say, listen, you can spend $600 of Bitcoin a year on consumer transactions without registering a game, but we would need to see something like that in order to see that kind of adoption. You're absolutely right.
0: Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you think is really important for people to know when they consider how the law impacts Bitcoin usage and development?
2: Yeah, it depends on who you are. If you're an entrepreneur, you want to make sure that... I've seen increasing numbers of people walk into my office who got some bad advice from consultants along the way who were or weren't lawyers, uh, may or may not have been. And so there's a lot of bad advice going around in 2017-18, and there are some people who Who are still out there giving bad advice? I think the thing to do is go find a lawyer who's going to tell you the absolute worst case, most regulated scenario. That when you have a conversation with a lawyer about a new Bitcoin product offering, you should come away from that being very uncomfortable. (laughs) It is, it's a tightly regulated space. It's a good sign. Right. There are no easy answers. This can be done. You can operate a Bitcoin business in a regulatory compliant fashion however it requires a lot of work and advice and design in order to do that correctly. So if your lawyer is saying listen you're doing this bitcoin offering and it's easy peasy, just spin up a website and you're good to go because it's not money and blah 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 and this doesn't apply, I would be very cautious of that advice. From consumer's really the thing to be aware of is just it's a caveat emptor. There is a lot of stuff out there which is going to try to oversell itself to you and if you're looking at making an investment in it or you are looking at uh, you know consuming the product or you're looking about whatever it is. Really do as much diligence as you possibly can, because a lot of people have been burned a lot of times over the last couple of years, and I don't see that changing anytime soon.
0: Gotcha. And thinking about Section 230, which we had talked about before when it comes to internet law, do you think that there's any relation that the First Amendment has connected to that in terms of free speech on Facebook or Twitter? Like the example I was giving about someone wanting to meet with a group of friends for something that could be viewed as soliciting sex, but might also just be consensual interactions.
2: So the relationship between the First Amendment and Section 230 is that the First Amendment protects these platforms in making moderation decisions which affect their users. So Section 230 says you have no civil liability to your users for either um, content that another information content provider, i.e. a user posts, or moderation decisions made in good faith to remove objectionable material. If those two things are the activity in question, the platform is generally immune. The platform has First Amendment rights just like anybody else's First Amendment rights. So Facebook can boot someone off its platform quite without regard to that person's political preferences and for really any reason it wants, more or less, without running the risk of being sued by that person. Similarly, that person is free to go and build their own platform or go to another platform or say what they want generally speaking, those platforms will be based in the United States. So we have some alternative platforms here. Gab, Minds, Parlay are three examples, Gab being the most prominent of platforms which adhere their moderation or have their moderation policies adhere to First Amendment standards. So the relationship between the First Amendment and Section 230 is not one where if you see a user bringing a First Amendment action against a tech company for a Section 230 violation, the action almost certainly will fail because it, they're not really in the same in the same wheelhouse. The First Amendment right in that situation is as against the government, and it's held by the tech company, not by the user. So if someone says, the First Amendment allows me to say what I want on Facebook, they're wrong. If, however, someone says, listen, the First Amendment allows me to create my own version of Facebook, my own tech company, and allow people to say what they want, and I'll be protected under Section 230, that is a correct statement. And that, I think, is the solution to big tech censorship is independent platforms like Minds or Gab, creating those online spaces where people can say what they want within the boundaries of U.S. law.
0: Gotcha. And we also have projects like Juggernaut or Sphinx Chat, which can use Bitcoin technologies to communicate directly. You have the right to speak, you just don't have the right to a platform, so you have to find a platform that is open to that kind of speech, is what I'm hearing from you.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right.
0: Awesome. Well, Preston, you've given me so much to think about. Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me once again.
0: This is Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn. For more interviews and insights, check out coindesk.com. Take care, everybody.